Hi, everyone. We've missed you all so much in this hiatus. I'm Talita. Hi, I'm Sabiba, and we're behind the social. Before we begin, I was actually hoping to mention something. As you can see from the title, we will be talking about feminism. So for a portion of this episode, we will include summaries of what the four waves of feminism are. So to some of you, as a heads up, this will sound a little tedious and we apologize in advance if it does. Uh, regardless, we feel strongly about our view, our listeners having some kind of informative te- context about these sort of topics. I mean, one thing we think it's interesting slash useful information to know, but we mainly do this because it creates a clear segue to Sabiba and I's discussions, which frequently touch base on background knowledge of our topic. Right, absolutely. Um, Technicality and jargon are necessary in order to um, communicate efficiently. Um, We do this podcast for ourselves and our style for each episode could vary And this one will include an informative and opinion-based conversation. So part of the reason we took this long break was to ensure we had enough time to advocate for a much bigger movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. This is something both Talita and I feel very strongly about, and we practice active anti-racism both on and off air. We were experiencing a historic moment, and the best thing to do was to not take away from the light. But another thing that is also extremely important right now is to sustain the momentum. So moving forward, the activism may die down, the debates at family dinners may disappear, yet the suffering continues. And that includes casting our votes right and studying our candidates extremely well so our goals may come to fruition. Speaking of which, our mail-in ballots for North Carolina are now being accepted. And if you have not yet registered, for one, it takes less than three minutes to do. So please, please, please make sure your vote is being cast properly. Yes, yes, yes. And building off what Sabiba just said, really with like election season, there's so much heavy tension and resentment, understandably in the air. But another thing is, one particular thing really is the tragic events that have occurred in history and are still occurring now. I think of like the loss of black individuals like Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, George Floyd, and the list goes on and on. And enforcement brutality is really just one component of the deeper issue of racism that is so heavily rooted here in America. We can't just badge for names we see on the screens, but we really have to work together to take measures to protect people who face different forms of bigotry on like a daily basis. Um, And we have to really prevent this further injustice. So, you know, as Sabiba said, don't let those family debates die, like die down. Let's keep speaking up in person on social media, donating, participating in protests, and just generally holding one another. This momentum is really everything. Absolutely. And and the last thing I wanted to mention is for our topic today, I am just giving a little bit of a trigger warning since some of our content is serious and addresses themes like sexual violence and exploitation. So feminism, just so we're clear, is the movement that aims to establish equality 
between the sexes in terms of society, politics, and the economy. And this is often done by establishing equal rights and legal protection of women. So the first wave feminism began, er, began around um, the mid-19th century, primarily in Britain and the United States, and was centered around women's suffrage or the right to vote. And this wave focused mostly on suffrage until the start of World War I, when many activists, activists switched their support towards the war. And starting from the Seneca Falls Convention all the way to the Women's March in 2017, the feminist movement is alive and thriving. And through the years after that, feminism has taken many shapes and evolved according to whatever the time demanded for bettering the quality of women's lives and battling the inequality that we unfortunately have to face till this day. These changes were classified into sections, and that is how we get these waves of feminism. So these evolutionary aspect, um, aspects of feminism, the feminist movement, has always been used by individuals and groups in opposition as a way to dissect the movement, uh, or I mean discredit the movement. Um, which is unfortunate. And in this episode, we will address some of those critiques and dissect them. Thank you, Sabibs, for that introduction breakdown. And now that you've spoken about first and second wave, I'm going to speak a little bit about third and fourth wave feminism, which is going to be the main focus of our episode. So third wave feminism began in the mid-1990s up until early 2000s. And what made it different from the previous two waves is that it really focused on themes like postmodernism and queer theory. It really did begin to view feminism through a lens that was neither cisgender nor heteronormative. Um, just because in the first two waves, there was little acknowledgement or relevance for non-white, non-hetero women. And another central component of third wave feminism was that intersect intersectionality was really big. And so third wave feminisms feminists, excuse me, aim to examine the interconnected structure of like society in regards to like race, sexual orientation, politics, all of those different factors and its connection to woman. And Another thing was there was this really big emergence of subcultures. Like, there's something I just learned about. It's called the Riot Girl Movement. And it was really, Riot Girl Movement is really this genre of punk rock, since as we know, like, 90s had a punk rock feel to it, where they utilized this genre as, like, a platform to address, like, patriarchy, domestic abuse, rape, and, like, other... Um, other really serious themes and the motto was really to empower women to define their own beauty through individuality rather than being objects of male desire and I feel like this uh like using music as a platform to kind of do this inter empowerment is like still very common now um but a final defining characteristic was that for third wave feminism it was all about subverting traditionally sexist ideals and kind of redefining what it meant to be a woman. When I think of like 2000s icons, like I kind of wrote down in my head, I was like, there's people like Madonna, for example. And in her music, she really spread the message that a woman could be 
powerful and domineering versus the traditional shy and passive. And I also really like that in like these recent waves, we've brought back terms that have a negative connotation to them. And we've brought back words that should be in our popular speech, like vagina, you know, and I mean, it's really just anatomical feature here, but obviously there's so much more to summarize in this wave for third wave and it could take the whole damn day. But uh, for the sake of time and discussion, I will be bringing up a few critiques I saw online about this wave and share our thoughts. So for critique one, as I just mentioned, there was the emergence of uh, the riot girl movement in the third wave. And again, it advocated for expressions of strong femininity and sexuality as a challenge to objectification. It really fostered women to define and control how they choose to dress, act, and express themselves as individual characters. But there was some criticism because some people viewed the third wave philosophy as contradictory to the anti-pornography stances that were common in second wave feminism. Basically, second wave proponents viewed pornography as encouraging violence against women and they found that if the second wave proponents had this kind of standpoint how is it that third wave people can be advocating for things like pornography and strong sexuality if it was viewed as violent but um really when I read this criticism initially I found it conflicting too because third wave feminism is about owning sexuality as a part of empowerment Um, rather than being perceived as oppressive or violent. Um, But at the same time, the meaning of feminism varied depending on the time period and context. Um, I'm not going to watch porn from a decade ago to analyze this, but in that second wave time frame, maybe there were underlying messages in porn videos that objectified women in this like harmful, demeaning way. And when I rewind in time, I just think of like how common or frequent it was for women to come across violence-related situations. And of course, there still are, unfortunately. Um, But so in a way, I can understand why during the second wave there were anti-pornography stances. Whereas now my current opinion about porn in in this current fourth wave, um, and even in the third wave, is much different. But Sabiba, like, what are your thoughts on this critique? Do you think it's contradictory that third wave feminists are standing for the motto of owning sexuality and perhaps embracing industries such as pornography, while second folks had view like opinions completely against that? Yeah, Talita, um, that's a really interesting point in discussion. Um, I feel like to address that question, it's important to rewind and emphasize one of the points that you bring up that the meaning of feminism or really the purpose of it as a political movement has varied and evolved through the years. So for example, women getting together at Seneca Falls back in our early days had really different demands than that of the ones um, in the women in DC in 2017. And this difference in demands when one new movement arises does not at all discredit the works and the wants of the latter. But let's unpack why. So the activists during the women's suffrage movement had voting rights as their topmost priority and demands. 
because politically that was the most urgent and pressing first step. While the third wave has their own set of feminist demands, such as taking charge of own sex their own sexuality and claiming ownership of their bodies. And, um, you know, this difference really exists because of how feminism is, it's a very subjective movement. You know, ev like I think the movement is trying to better women's lives from how it is right now. So time plays a really important role. So the reason why there's difference in opinions in terms of how second wave viewed pornography as a versus how third wave, uh, third wave views pornography as empowering, I think that lies in the difference in context of pornography as well. So let's take a look back at the porn industry during the third wave. And I did some research. So this industry was known to have been extremely oppressive and was attached to a lot of exploitation of women and their bodies. And I'm not saying it still isn't in too many cases. There unfortunately still are women and children being violated in that aspect against their will. And beyond what can be seen on the surface level, there's just so much that goes into it um, that we just don't see, you know, in not just a porn industry, but also mainstream media. Um, so be it a way to earn livelihood in order to survive or being forced into it. Um, I think there are way too many cases till this day that pornography is being used as an oppressive tool. But looking back at it, the case in which pornography was used as an oppressive tool against women before the third wave seems to be much higher than the way it is now. Um, and we have a huge adult film industry where actors and actresses are coming in through an official talent acquisition process. There, there are laws that are in effect that protect their rights. They're regular place on artistic liberty and the ownership of content, um, which we did not see 20 years ago. And that is not to say the industry isn't still benefiting from exploitation even now, but the magnitude in which this happened is much different. So because now we live in a world where there are cases where pornography is being seen as a creative outlet um, instead of oppression. Um, so it's, you know, in a lot of ways, I think it is an act of taking charge of your own body and your own sexuality. And many women are coming willingly and choosing this as a career path. And in that, they are taking full control of their sexuality. I think that's empowering. And I think it might be helpful to highlight here that, you know, as a lot of us know, women's sexuality and self-expression is one of those things that are greatly regulated by men till this day including, you know, practices in history from genital mutilation to the ways in which body policing still takes place. Film industry can be very much an act of empowerment, of course. Hmm. Yeah, I actually agree with every point you make here. And, you know, come to think of it, there's there are now more legal enforcements. And of course, I can't argue this for every business, but there are more legal enforcements in the adult film industry that restrict actions that could physically harm a woman or involve lack of consent. Um, and even if pornography did exist as early as the first wave, there can have, there could have been rising issues that many people at the time were 
ill-informed, ill-educated, or just not aware enough to bring to the spotlight. Uh, but because porn has become become more normalized over time, I think as a result, more more of those entertainment industries slash businesses have kind of like joined heads to recognize those possible loopholes in the practice that could actually lead to taking advantage of like porn actresses or putting them in a risky professional professional or just literal position. And because of this, you know, they took legal actions for protection. But really to reiterate what you said, Sabiba, the third and second wave stances of porn and its relationship with feminism don't discredit one another. At the time, both those views were forms of empowerment for different reasons and different times had different priorities. So I, going back to general critiques, I found another sub critique online that for the third wave, third wave that I thought was kind of a hot take. The sub critique I found, and this is uh, kind of transitioning away from pornography, um, but it basically claims that certain third wave positions were very subjective in regards to autonomy and empowerment. And because of this, in the third wave, female empowerment became really ambiguous or challenging to objectively define. One example they used to argue this point was about female clothing choices, more specifically like the example, the classic example, the the hijab versus the crop top, both with supposedly opposing ideals for self-expression. And, you know, here's what I think, um, and people may disagree with me here, but I always feel that female empowerment will be by nature subjective and for me like wouldn't it be counterintuitive to argue that doing so-and-so is the correct action of empowerment that I feel could be closed-minded and actually hinder a woman's autonomy and you know while we do hope to reach like a few conclusions about what empowerment is it really may be a little unrealistic to make it a goal to reach this kind of objective ground on certain feminist ideas. Absolutely. And and like thinking of like the clothing example they used, well, you know, both choices wearing hijab or a crop top, an item that shows your bare skin are, in my opinion, liberating forms of self-expression. To me, wearing a crop top kind of feel, freely represents like a woman's right to show to bare skin without being objectified or blamed. And then Islam, wearing a hijab, uh, among other represents among other things protection from male objectification. Uh, but even though women should really be able to wear anything they want without being objectified. I, I really do think women should be given the freedom to cover up if they feel more comfortable. And, you know, I'm not saying this because I'm Muslim myself, but in reality, there are certain situations where women sadly get objectified. So many wear hijab as a choice in order to eliminate any possibility of objectification, which unfortunately still does exist. It's their right to cover themselves, um, if, especially if they feel more empowered and comfortable to do so. But again, you know, the same notion applies to someone who chooses to reveal skin and feel more empowered by bearing skin. You know, both clothing types, uh, you know, wearing hijab or crop top are different forms of 
self-empowerment, even if they are paradoxical or sound paradoxical. Um, and this is another, you know, going back to the main point, this is a case of subjectivity. But in my opinion, how else can one describe this situation? Mm. I find this one particularly agitating because I feel like this is such a binary example, which which makes it so bothersome to me. I catch myself having this conversation over and over again in different settings. And what I say about this is the subjective nature, as you said, of the movement here and why that may challenge society. I think it's because we as humans tend to often associate values certain qualifiers. So for example, we a lot of times I, I think we equate decency to covering up physically or being physically pretty with not doing well in school, which often holds us back from understanding ideas that are a little more abstract. And you may call this fixation with certain practices and rituals. As humans, we often tend to fall in the trap of easy assumptions and get entangled in biased beliefs. When in reality, I feel like there is no right or wrong in so many areas of life and not just in this matter. Exactly. It is about constantly building and breaking ideas and accepting things as they come. Um, So another thing that comes to mind whenever we talk about the subjectivity regarding how women choose to dress is that clothing choices are so deeply related to identity as a human being. Um, It is one of the most meaningful outlets of self-expression. The way a person dresses is a reflection of their identity, their ideology, their perception of self, and the way they think that the world should see them, which is a beautiful thing. And the whole argument about hijab versus the crop top, just come on, even (laughs) is it's agitating to me. It's not like hijab is like the opposite of the crop top. Um, I think it's rooted essentially in police. And then there's another thing that I wanted to address is that controlling women's clothing choices is a lot of times deemed a concept when in reality, this is worldwide. So in other words, feminism is subjective and so is the nature of self-expression. Um, therefore, I think this is another fragile attempt at shutting down brave women who embrace themselves. Yeet. okay and finally we have the fourth wave and this wave began in 2013 and is now our present part of our present day this wave kind of quote-unquote carried like the same agenda as the third wave which centered on like marginalization of women intersectionality and how like systems of power have kind of pushed for movements of like equal pay um body autonomy you know just seeking justice against sexual violence and like what but what makes the fourth wave different from like the other previous waves is that it utilized social media on like a really grand scale to produce this platform of women sharing their stories and connecting with other females and like using hashtags like me too or bring back our girls 
bring back our girls and which is international and we even see like the rise of campaigns such as like the slut walk with miss amber rose like you know free the nipple and the time's up movement so from what i really read i felt that fourth wave folks were like really able to advocate on a level that was even broader and even more applicable to minority women versus even how it was in the third wave and something like that I like wholeheartedly vouch for and that is emphasized is that in this wave people of like you know people of traditionally dominant social groups and I like immediately think of like white women um, are now more commonly acknowledging their privilege and using it to empower and advocate like marginalized minority woman um and like i've seen celebrities do it too um yeah talita i think that was a really good rundown of what the fourth wave is so if we're gonna look at some of the critiques for the fourth wave that are commonly used to attack a lot of feminists so one of them that i read about was how a huge part of the activism was done over the internet and how that was just performative activism and this one particularly applies to the fourth wave and public speakers conservative leaders and twitter trolls all seem to get slightly obsessed about this specific detail regarding this movement um so one thing that is to be pointed here is that the time when the fourth wave was born was a very different time than that of the women's suffrage movement, for example. The fourth wave is known to have started in 2000, um, 2013? Yeah, 2013. Yeah, 2013, yeah. So really when, you know, social media was getting bigger, and around that time, I think a lot of people were using Facebook, Twitter, and so, um, so really at the peak of the internet's popularity growth. That makes me question the legitimacy of the point being made here. Um, And to acknowledge that performative activism is absolutely a thing. We see it every day. We see influencers posting about how we should mask and then getting caught at some rave with a thousand people. But performative (laughs) activism, I don't think it's specific to the World Wide Web. I, I'm sure that wherever there has been activism, a fraction of performative activists had to have been there. Um, example of social media activism being impactful is the Black Lives Matter movement. And we all saw how heavily this movement benefited from having supporters and donors online. And you're easily able to spread the word to hundreds of people by tapping your fingers. So I definitely don't think that the influence that Uh, social media had on the fourth wave took away from it however various while various feminist campaigns have spread via social media and led to subsequent success offline the term slacktivism was still coined to describe the mass media users who may speak out on their online platform but do a little in real life to stimulate social action outside of their um you know Twitter page or whatever. So I think this one, some of the sub movements such as hashtag me too movement that gave so many women a platform to share their stories. Um, and I feel like the 2017 women's March is proof that this is not really true. Most people heard about the March via Twitter and Instagram yet they gathered from 
everywhere in the U.S. in person to fight for their rights. And this forms part of a greater dialogue surrounding the roles and requirements of activism in an age where communities operate almost as equally online as they do face-to-face. So what are your thoughts on this, Talita? Yeah, I think, you know, especially after the media surge and acknowledgement of the Black Lives, with Black Lives Matter movement, I, I do think slacktivism is a legitimate phenomenon. Um, but I also feel that this critique has its pros and its cons. Um, I don't know how much to say about the early 2000s since I was young and going through puberty. <laughs> but um, living through the fourth wave now, I think if everyone had the exact mindset that liking tweets, uh, po- uh, pictures or posts, or posting posts related to uh, like feminist campaigns or empowerment could lead to ultimate progression while thinking that doing just that could ultimately be very flawed. And, you know, laziness is certainly an obstacle for not making those offline efforts. Um, Let's be real. It's so much easier to comment and say something like, I hear you, than get yourself to take action Um, But no judgments here since we've all done this at least once in our life. But the main point to be said is we all still have to aim and try to do better. Um, And I also think going off of this, there's really no need for people to engage and call out culture for this either since um, it would be better to kind of just pull people aside. And I'm not just speaking with like women here, but also just like any like any person um, and have an honest conversation that is actually more intellectually stimulating. Um, Another thing is because like media and the news expands at an exponential rate, it unfortunately can die down just as fast. You know, they have the, like the phrase, whatever Mm -hmm. comes fast ends fast. So like relying on the internet as the primary tool of female advocacy could honestly be a hit or a miss and you never know but even so the internet has taught me a lot um like one point you just made Sabiba was that uh I don't you know a lot of things I don't hear about in person I hear about half the shit I do online and I wouldn't be as educated as I am today had I not seen those things through like social media apps honestly but other than that like the internet has taught me so much about what my idea of being uniquely female is and how to be comfortable and confident with that. You know, especially seeing how other women, particularly particularly those of color like me, kind of uh, showcase their individuality in terms of sexual orientation or career occupation, racial identity, all these things. I've, you know, I've come across posts where I'm like, wow, like, this trans woman who's brown like me is kind of showing everyone how powerful she is by defying heteronormative expectations and like being an entrepreneur of, uh, I don't know, like this cruelty-free cosmetic brand. Um, But like on a more serious note, it's just inspired many females to share their stories uh, and, you know, like, such as like sexual assault or you know harassment and kind of validate perhaps the situation they went through where they thought you know they were the only ones to experience that like level of pain fear discomfort and so the this domino effect of personal narratives is a product 
or at least one product of the internet and has created this online community of feminism. That was beautiful, Talise. Thank you for that. Um, I think that's very true for a lot of us because so many of, you know, kids in our generation, I feel like we get a lot of news and ideas from the internet, which we probably wouldn't talk about if it wasn't for the internet. So I absolutely agree 100%. Um, So another critique for the fourth wave feminism that is brought up by many people is that people who identify as fourth wave feminists like to play victim by pretending as if the world is set against them. And so the feminist refuses to be placed at a same level as a man and therefore depends on outside support for her to compete a man. And I think we're talking like in the sense of a career pursuit. Um, I think of the author Joanna Williams who wrote the book, The American Conservative, that fourth wave feminists share an encouragement to, and I quote, call upon external helpmates like the state and ugly identity politics that push good men away. (laughs) So firstly, I, I don't think the state can be considered an external helpmate. When you're a citizen of a state, it is supposed to take care of you and make sure your basic human needs are being met. And I personally think her statement is rooted in misogyny in the sense that this is dehumanizing almost, that by default, she's looking at the state as an external helpmate. When as women and as citizens of the state, we have all the rights to demand our fair share of things from it. I think this particular issue comes up a lot with women and gender equality um, in the political sense, where women's issues are not considered human rights issues. Secondly, identity politics. I think that's such a vague phrase, but generally for those who don't know, it refers to the alliances formed around issues pertaining people's, to people's identity. Usually the focus is on women, racial minorities, immigrants, and the LGBTQ plus community and religious minorities, such as Muslim Americans. Um, I don't think there's anything ugly about any of that. In fact, these alliances historically have helped marginalized communities to better their lives by great measures. Um, The Pride Parade, for example, the Women's March, these are all acts of identity politics. And I don't think there's anything ugly about any of it. Anyway, so to come back to the point of the criticism that by asking for things, fourth wave feminists are calling for external help and therefore deeming themselves as less capable than men. This is an equity issue. So what it means is people have the same level of opportunities and resources to achieve an environment that creates a fair competition. But equity entails giving everyone whatever they need to have the same level of advantage. So for example, if I'm three foot tall and I have a friend who's seven foot tall, excuse me, and we go to a really crowded concert and my friend and I both bring stools that are one foot tall to stand on in order to help us see the performers. And we both stand on our respect, uh, respective one foot tall platforms. We have received what's called equality, but in order for us to receive equity, I must have access to a stool that compensates for the height gap. So I must have a stool that is five feet tall to reach the same eye level as my friend. And that, and then we will have received equity. So fourth wave feminists are 
aiming to establish equity in society when they're asking for external help to have advantage. Um, thinking for thinking of a real life application of gender based equity could be having enough women in administrative roles and power positions in the workplace, or it may look like a sensibly long paid maternity leave like all other developed countries have implemented. And I believe until equity is received, the competition is not fair game at all. What are your thoughts, Talita? Yeah, I, I honestly, like, I just completely disagree with this criticism. I feel that the accusation of playing victim has unfortunately formed because women in recent decades have continually and rightfully so vocalized struggles and experiences in inqual- in, of inequality. Uh, these criticizers think that the more we have to say about a particular issue or even point out a new issue, the more these problems are perceived as less significant or even redundant. You know, it's like the dilution effect where the more you add to a solution, the less each particle is individually recognized or equally valued, if you know what I mean. Um, And I'm laughing, actually, because we're definitely on a metaphor game right now with, like, your stool example and, like, (laughs) dilution example. Um, But, you know, eventually with this quote-unquote pattern of movement in feminism, this pattern of movement in feminism could appear increasingly questionable or irritable to the extent where we supposedly play the victim. However, I don't think this role-playing claim is accurate because, of course, our problems are strongly strongly legitimate. As for labeling the state as an external help wait, helpmate, which I've never heard of before, well, I'll, you know, I, I, I'll just pull in your equity example in here. You know, yes, after one point, we have in history received some standard rights, such as men, like with voting or the ability to work outside of the household. But, you know, first, there is still progress to be implemented about topics surrounding like unequal wage and limited reproduction rights. Second, because men have been historically valued higher in like the social hierarchy, you know, women are now or at least partially suffering the aftermath of this in their pursuit to attain like the same privileges and goals. If you've always been seven feet tall, receiving a one foot stool will enhance your view. Alternatively, alternatively, if you have like a three foot stool to work with, then getting that same one feet stool is only one foot stool is going to give you a different and perhaps still unfair view. Um, I know this is a rough metaphor, but, you know, the message to be made is that we rightfully call upon the state and politics for help because being proactive, especially within feminism, commonly requires legislative and public action. So, yeah, thank you for wrapping it up so nicely. Because, yeah, I, I totally agree. That's very true. Um, so being productive does require both legislative and public action and vocalizing things back to back and not tolerating any BS is just the start of it. So 
you know, if someone wants to call fourth wave feminists nitpicky, I think they know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think we've reached a pretty good stopping point for this episode. I hope you all enjoyed our lengthy dialogue or at least learned something. Yeah, thank you so much for listening. Tune in until next time when we have a fun chat about quantum physics with one of our friends, Nebu. Yeah, you know, it's actually kind of funny because Sabiba and Nebu, our friend Nebu, are like really huge science science junkheads. So I was like, how do you put fun chat and quantum <laughs> physics in the same sentence? But you know, whatever, we'll see. But regardless, if you guys do have any questions or suggestions on how we can improve our co- podcast, uh, you know, do email us at behindthesocial2020 at gmail.com. Or if you know us personally, shoot us a text message. But thanks again for listening. Uh, bye for now. And I hope you guys all stay safe during this pandemic. And please wear a mask. And vote. Yes. Okay. And vote. Yes. Bye. Who run the world? Girls, girls, who run the world? Girls, girls, who run the world? Girls, girls, who run the world?